Elaine and I uh, recently uh, celebrated a wedding anniversary. And so we decided to, to get away and we drove to Virginia. And we have been there several times and uh, we really like that part of the country, especially around the Williamsburg area. But as you drive through Virginia, there's miles and miles of horse farms and cattle farms. And um, we've always liked it. In fact, we've even uh, joked at times that it were, if it weren't for the kids and the grandchildren that we would actually move there and live there. But we would have to learn how to include words like, like ma'am and y'all into our conversations. But in, uh, you know that driving has changed uh, so much since we were first married. Elaine will tell you that when, uh, uh, when we drove to Niagara Falls on our honeymoon, that I had to tell her that the map was upside down as she was navigating us to Niagara Falls. And I, I, I don't remember that, but she swears by it. But today we have a, a GPS, and I, I think that GPS is one of the best inventions of the last 50 years. You know, we've grown to become so accustomed to the fact that it not only gives us the direction that we're going to, but it you know, reroutes us around traffic, and it could even find a, a McDonald's for us if we ask it to. But I think that as, uh, as great as uh, it is, I tend to lose the, the big picture of where I am. You know, the GPS gives you that close in and tells you the detail of where the, where the next turn is, but it's easy to lose that overall view that, that a map gives you. In fact, while we were, while we were in uh, Virginia, someone asked me uh, what route we took to avoid Philadelphia, that area where the 95 had collapsed due to the fire there. And I told them I, I didn't even know. I was just, just watching the GPS. I had no idea how I, how I got around it. You know, and sometimes having that, that, that bigger overall view of something helps you to put all of the little details together so that it makes more sense to you. And I think of it sometimes, it's like a, having a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and have of a, a, like a fall landscape and having to put it together, but you don't have the cover of the box to go by. You know? And I think that sometimes the, uh, the, the Bible is like that thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. You know, we read a section of it, but if we don't have that overall picture of what's going on, we can end up missing some of what's there for us to learn. You know, like when we watch a movie, the directors and the writers, they help to develop the, the personalities of the characters because it helps to make the story kind of come to life. And so I, I thought that if we, uh, as we look at Paul's letter to Timothy, I, I thought it would be helpful for us to step back a little bit, to see the bigger picture of who Timothy is, kind of a, like a, a snapshot of, of who is this that Paul is writing to. And I think it'll be helpful in our getting a better understanding for this section of the letter. Paul is, is, is writing to Timothy, who's his co-worker. But in reality, uh, Timothy is really his, his pastoral protege. He's writing some very clear instructions to Timothy of what he should be teaching, how the church should be managed, and how this young pastor should be conducting himself. When, when the letter is written, Timothy is probably in his mid-30s, and he may have been traveling with Paul for some 15 years. Timothy was somebody that Paul loved, truly loved, and he often referred to him as a son. 
And we, we, when we take everything that we know from the New Testament and we put it together, it becomes obvious that, that Timothy wasn't made of that same bold confidence that Paul was. He was a very timid character, and he needed a lot of, a lot of reassurance and direction. Listen to what uh, John Pollock writes in his book, The Apostle. He says, Timothy was a complicated character. He had a weak stomach, looked very young, was not a muscular Christian. Nervous, a little afraid of hardship, though enduring it without flinching. He was tempted occasionally to be ashamed of Paul and the gospel. And when scholars connect the dots in Paul's first and second letters to the Corinthians, they see that Paul is sending Timothy to that church, and he's asking the people there to set him as, at ease and not despise him. But when you look at the, the second letter to the Corinthians, it appears like Timothy's mission had not been successful, and we find that it's Titus and not Timothy who's become Paul's delegate at the church. So as we read Paul's letter, it's good for us to see the, the real Timothy. And I think it's easy for us to think of these early uh, Christian leaders as somehow like super spiritual. And today we have like, churches that are named after them. They have their image on the stained glass in the windows. And in some cases, they've even become uh, patron saints that people pray to. But the, the reality is, is that they're very much like us. They're people who love the Lord and who wanted to follow him but struggled and sometimes failed. People who needed help, people who needed encouragement. And just like us, they needed to grow in their walk with Christ. At times, we may be a bit timid and need that occasional uh, reassurance. And sometimes, maybe even shying away from admitting that we're Christians. Timothy was not very different from us. But Paul believed in him, and he took Timothy under his wing. And under his guidance, he assigned him to become the leader of this church in Ephesus. And I think that this snapshot of Timothy helps us to get an understanding of why Paul is writing to him. He wants his young fellow co-worker to be successful. And so he gives him some personal instruction as to how to be a good leader. And so as we look this morning at this section of the letter, I want you to think about how the Lord may be speaking to you in this. How Paul's encouragement and his direction for Timothy might also apply to us. Our text this morning is from uh, 1 Timothy 4. Paul writes in verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. He says that Timothy will be a good servant if he puts these things before the brothers. What are these things that Paul is referring to? For this, we need to go back and look at where we were last week. At the end of chapter 3, Paul reminds Timothy that the, the mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ. What was hidden is now revealed. Entrance into God's kingdom is available through Christ. And then in chapter 4, he wrote that some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. In 
And I want to just touch on just this just a little bit because we didn't spend time on this last week. And it ties into those things that Paul is telling Timothy to put before the brothers. False teaching had caused some to abandon the faith. There's, a, there's an immeasurable responsibility in Timothy's role as a leader. As the shepherd of this flock, he's to care and to watch over the souls of the church. And Paul says that because of these, this false teaching in the church, some of these under Timothy's care had abandoned the faith. The teachings of Jesus and the apostles are clear. Salvation is through Christ alone. And rejecting the message of salvation and abandoning the faith has eternal consequences, which is a very sobering thought. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Strive to enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there are who take it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. In the first week of our series, Josh said that the, the heart of the church is to save people, to bring the gospel to the world. This is what we mean by evangelism, bringing the, the good news of the gospel that leads to eternal life. And this is Paul's command to Timothy, and it's also the command to every church leader today. But it's also a message for us who are followers of Christ. We're not able to convince people to accept the gospel. That's the work of God's Spirit. But we are uh, responsible to know the truths of God so that we can be able to share those truths so that his Spirit can do a work in those lives. Listen to what Paul writes to his, in his letter to the Romans. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the gospel message. But then he says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So I want you to think, the next time you're about to put on your socks and you look down at your feet, to think that even your feet God considers to be beautiful because you bring the gospel message of salvation to others. And then he says, those who abandon the faith are following doctrines of demons. And when you hear doctrines of demons, thoughts of Satan worship or teachings about the occult probably come to mind. I heard of a pastor who had a little statue in his office of a figure with the red outfit, the horns, the tail, the pitchfork. And people would ask him and say, why do you have a statue of the devil in your office? And he would say, that's not the devil. If he looked like that, nobody would follow after him. The devil is far too cunning to look like that. If you have never read C.S. Lewis' book, uh, Screwtape Letters, it's, it's worthwhile. This is a, it's a satire of a series of, of letters from a senior demon named Screwtape who's writing to his, his, his nephew, Wormwood, who was a junior demon. 
And Lewis brings us kind of into the thinking of how demons use strategies and tactics to exploit our weaknesses and to distract us on our spiritual journey. And it's kind of helpful here to understand the kind of sleight of hand trickery that reverses reality so that what is good becomes evil and what's evil becomes good. The false teachings that Paul is warning uh, Timothy about are not blatantly and obviously evil, otherwise nobody would have followed him. False teachings are, are deceitful, they're deceiving, meaning that they're not easily recognizable. They're subtle, right? And they sound very reasonable, and oftentimes they sound very much like the truth. And most often they're pleasing and they're attractive with the intention of making us feel good. That's what makes them deceitful. But the goal of the Christian life is not to make us feel comfortable. God's intention is to make us more like his son. And sometimes that may mean putting us into, into difficult circumstances that are intended to make us grow. And so in verse 6 from this morning's text, Paul says to Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. This is what Timothy as the leader of this church is going to be graded on. To be a good minister, you have to point out these things, the things that are true and the things that are false. This is something that God looks at when he grades his leaders, when he grades his church. He has entrusted to us to be the pillars and the foundations of the truth. How are we doing at that? As it was in the first century, so it is today. The church has been entrusted with the truths of God, the truths that lead to eternal life. They're both to be taught and to be protected. What might be, the, I think, the biggest threat to the church today is the infiltration of the culture. We have to be careful that the scriptures are not massaged and twisted to accommodate the culture. So that rather than the church being the pillar of truth and influencing the culture, the culture ends up influencing the church to adopt its teachings and its way of life. I think this is a, I think this is a very real threat that the church faces today. He says in verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. He mentioned this back in chapter 1. And it's not certain what he's referring to about godless myths and wives' tales. But the overall point is clear. He's not to get entangled in teachings that would draw him away from these central truths of God's word. And this was Paul's focus. Listen to what Paul wrote to, when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or, wis or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstrations of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. 
Paul committed himself not to get entangled in wise and persuasive tactics in order to convince people to become followers of Jesus. Instead, he said that he would leave everything else aside and stay focused on Christ and him crucified, the simple gospel message. He tells Timothy to train yourself in godliness. He says, because for a while, bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The idea is that of an athlete, right? That, that just as an athlete has to, has to condition his body in order to be prepared to, to play on the field, Paul says that to Timothy that, that he also has to train properly to fulfill his calling as a minister of God. And again, Paul puts that emphasis on the eternal. Having a healthy body has benefits in this life, but godliness has benefits both in this life and into eternity. And it's so, and it's so unnatural for us to do. But the most important focus of our lives should be on the eternal. We're, taught, we're taught to put like so much emphasis on education and success, financial stabilities, hobbies, and even sometimes in even how we look. And, and it's not that these things are bad or wrong. They do have value, and they are of benefit to us, but they shouldn't be the most important things in our lives. None of these things have an eternal eternal value, and yet these are the things that we spend so much of our lives focused on. We spend about one-third of our lives in tens of thousands of dollars preparing for our future. But how much time and effort do we spend on preparing for the real future, the future that goes on into eternity? Jesus once told a parable of a certain rich man who had a tremendous harvest. His harvest was so big that he had to tear down his barns and build bigger ones in order to store it all. And when he did, he decided to kick back and to eat and drink and be merry. But that night, God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life is required of you. And then who is going to get what you have prepared? And then Jesus said, this is how it will be with everyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. The man was a fool because none of his treasure had eternal value. But unlike the rich fool, Paul tells Timothy that training for godliness does have eternal value. And we see that in verse 10. He says, for to, to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. We do all of this because we have our hope set on God. The word hope, as Paul uses it, is not as we use it in our everyday language. We use the word hope to think that I hope something is true, I hope that I win the lottery. This is not what the word here is meant means. The word means confident expectation that we have put all of our eggs into one basket. We toil and we strive for godliness because we are confident that we are members of God's kingdom, both today 
and for all eternity. Paul's purpose for writing this letter to Timothy is to give him a boost, to, to prop him up and to make him successful. And as he wraps up this section, he gives several very direct commands to Timothy. And as we go through these, I want you to look at them as if Paul is writing the letter to you, a letter from the apostle to you that's to, intended to shore you up and to strengthen you wherever you may find yourself today in your walk with Christ. We'll go through these. In verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. And we've seen this as a theme for the last two weeks. It applies to church leadership, but it also applies to uh, community groups, to children's ministries, and even into our homes if we have children. The command is to teach the truths of God. In verse 12, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. He tells Timothy to be an example. Timothy's young and he's leading people that are older than him. And how does Paul want him to gain their respect? By being an example of godliness. And this command is for all of us. We're to be examples of godliness. It's one thing to be, able, to be willing to, to share the gospel with someone, but those opportunities don't arise every day. But how we interact with people, how we treat people, that does happen every day. So how are we doing at modeling Christ? How people see us and what people think of us sets the table for those opportunities for us to share the gospel. You know, I think it was St. Francis of Assisi, if I'm not mistaken, who was the one who said, preach the gospel at all times. And when necessary, use words. Paul tells Timothy to be an example. In verse 13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. The focus has to be the Scriptures, the Word of God. God has revealed his truth to us through the Scriptures, the Bible. The command to, Tim to Timothy is not to stray and to become distracted by anything else, but to teach the scriptures, to know the scriptures, to teach the scriptures, to preach the scriptures. Do not neglect your gift, he says in verse 14, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Paul recognized Timothy's gifting to lead people, and Paul is helping him to nurture that gift. Every one of us has been given gifts from God. Some inclination or some tendency in our, in our character that makes us who we are. And just like Timothy, we too are encouraged not to neglect our gifts, those traits, the talents, the passions that God has formed in each of us. He's placed these in us and made us this way so that we could use these gifts for his service and for his glory. In verse 15, he says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. 
the concern was that Timothy wasn't commanding the respect from the church. And so Paul wants him to be totally devoted to these things so that he'll mature and gain that respect from the church. And whether you're new to the faith or whether you've walked with the Lord for years, we all have to be diligent. We all have to guard against becoming distracted and wandering away. Just like in a, in a marriage, so is our Christian faith. Ours is a personal relationship with the Lord. And this relationship has to be, has to be nurtured. It has to be kept fresh. We need to be growing in our walk with Christ and maturing as his disciples. It's easy for us to become deceived and distracted and even disillusioned sometimes and to end up drifting away from that commitment that we have today to follow Christ. And it might not be a single instant moment decision. It, it, it may just be that slow but subtle and steady drifting away. Paul is telling Timothy to have that inner resolve, that total commitment. That's what the Christian life requires. Jesus said, no man having set his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And just like Timothy, the Lord is asking us for that total commitment. He says to be diligent. And lastly, Paul adds, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He closes the way he began. Timothy's ministry has eternal consequences, both for himself and for his people. And Paul links doctrine and life together and says that these lead to salvation. The gospel message is clear. Salvation is through faith in Christ. And those who have trusted him and are filled with his, with his spirit will see their lives transformed. Jesus said that those who are members of God's kingdom will produce the fruits of that kingdom. And Paul tells Timothy that if he perseveres in these things, that he will save not only himself, but also those who hear him. Timothy was not very different from us. He had flaws, but he had a heart for Christ. Paul loved him, and Paul took him under his wing. He believed in Timothy, and he trusted that God had a plan for his life, and Paul dedicated himself to helping Timothy to fulfill that. All of us around a lifelong journey of walking with Christ. We're all in different places on that walk, but we're not alone in the journey. We see some believers that may be a few steps ahead of us, and there are some that are a few steps behind us. We can grow and we can be blessed by those Pauls that are in front of us, but we also have a chance to be a blessing to those Timothys that are a few steps behind us. We have those opportunities where community groups, children's ministry, divorce care, starting point classes, but mostly in those everyday, simple, one-on-one -on -one relationships with people. All of these are spaces in our lives where we can be blessed 
and where we can be a blessing to others as we encourage one another up and build each other up in the faith. And Paul said if we do these things, we will be good ministers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Pauls throughout history that have provided uh, clarity to know your truths. Not only to know the truth, but how that we should live godly lives before you as we, as we desire to become more and more like your son. Our prayer is that you would bring those Pauls into our lives that will help us to mature but at the same time that we would be sensitive to those Timothys in our lives who may need teaching or direction or just maybe just a hand on the shoulder and an encouraging word. Help us to be, to be sensitive and to be, to be that person in their lives. We ask, Lord, that you would give us a, a loving and a gentle confidence to witness for Christ, both in our words and, and in the way that we live our lives, that we would be a witness to a world that so, so desperately needs you. And our prayer, Lord, is for, for all of the suffering, and the, the, the wars in this world, and the violence. We ask that you would have mercy on us and bring peace and comfort to a very, very troubled world that so desperately needs you. Pray these things in Christ's name.